0: realistically most of the impacts that are that occur in the snowpack um, from fire disturbance come from reduction or elimination of of the canopy the tree canopy and then of course kind of increases in solar radiation and wind as a result Mm -hmm. Um, so generally speaking and you know different species of trees mean different things but generally speaking when uh, we see a fire go through whether that be like a big crown fire that immediately wipes out all those pine needles and branches or maybe even a smaller fire that causes the um some die off later on maybe not die off is the right word but some decay later on um you know that greatly increases the amount of sunlight on the snow and so as a result we get a lot faster melting of the snowpack in those areas Mm -hmm. you know a lot of people think that warm temperatures are, are the big driver for snow melt and that's Kind of true, but it's more so sunlight. So having that additional sun come in is really kind of problematic if we want our snowpack to stick around.
1: Hey, y'all, and welcome back to Life with Fire Podcast, the podcast about our relationship with wildfire and how we can better coexist with it in the future. I'm your host, Amanda Monti, and we are here today with our Fourth episode, yeah, fourth episode of our Protect Our Winters sponsored series about wildfire and outdoor recreation and how those two things impact each other. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about wildfire impacts on snowpack, which is relevant to the outdoor community, but also relevant to almost anybody who likes snow and water and glaciers and not seeing those things melting at a rapid rate. So to cover this topic with us, we brought on Andrew Schwartz, who is a lead at the uh, UC Berkeley Central Sierra Snow Lab. He's also a science alliance member for Protect Our Winters, which means that he sort of serves as an educational resource for the members of the athlete and creative alliances at Protect Our Winters. So yeah, they do a really good job of connecting people who maybe don't have as deep of a well of understanding of some of these really heady, sciencey topics, and connecting them to scientists in the West who have a really good understanding of some of these things. And they have open means of communication. You know, the athletes and the scientists are often talking and um, asking questions and connecting on creative projects, which is super cool to see. And I think that's really important moving forward, just having these means of communication between these different sort of pillars, whether that's in FIRE itself with, you know, policy and operations and research, but also in these nonprofit spaces where we can connect scientists to people who are creating content. And then the, you know, in this case, the athletes who are also out helping with the with the content creation. And so this really helps kind of broaden people's understanding of these topics and hopefully help their audiences understand those topics at a deeper level. If you'd like to learn more about Protect Our Winners, um, I will have a link to their website on this episode's show notes. Um, that'll also link you to their Stoke the Vote campaign, which is really focused on getting people out to engage politically this uh, midterm season and ensure that we are registered to vote and that we're engaging the outdoor community in this process Um because while voting feels maybe like a drop in the bucket, it is a very important part of this process. And so, Pow has done quite a bit in terms of uh, getting some campaigns off the ground to encourage folks to vote this this season. And I would, I would also encourage folks, uh, you know, beyond voting, a lot of us are already registered to vote, and we already plan to vote, and we do those things every every election that we can. Um, I would encourage you guys to also look for means of engaging in your community in other ways, whether that's politically or you know, with your local climate resilience or climate adaptation uh, organization, if you have one, if there's uh, maybe the Firewise organization in your community, um, maybe encouraging your county commissioners to consider resilience measures, just bringing these things to the attention of your local government or even applying for local government, applying for some of those board positions or commissioner positions. Um, those are all really important steps that we can take beyond voting if that's something Um, that we are already signed up to do and we want to look for more things that we can do in our communities. So just something to think about as we approach election season that voting is really important but you know maybe we can think of some other ways we can engage with our community and build community around the idea of fire resilience. You know if you don't have those organizations that are already working in your community like maybe consider starting one or seek out other folks that are like-minded and might also be interested in something like that. Um, Yeah. Lots of things you can do. Use your creativity. And, you know, if you are doing those things, I'd love to hear about it. Uh, You can send us an email at lifewithfirepod at gmail.com. I'd love to hear about some of those initiatives that are taking place at the community level. And we love to amplify those things. So please let me know. One last thing before we get this episode off the ground here. I am super appreciative of all the patrons and the few folks that have come on over the last few weeks um, as new patrons. So if you're interested in supporting the podcast, uh, you you can go check us out on Patreon and we'll have that linked in uh, the show notes for this episode. And we appreciate all the support over there. We also appreciate any of the shares that you guys are doing, um, the DMs, the reviews, even the critiques. You know, we love getting that. We love hearing from you guys and kind of seeing what kind of gaps that we have in our coverage of some of these topics. And we undoubtedly will have gaps and we do appreciate when you guys reach out and let us know how we're maybe not doing a certain topic justice. So if you have any of that stuff, uh, you know, let us know. We're happy to hear about it. Um, we also love, you know, getting positive feedback. So if you feel like doing that too, uh, we love getting reviews. We love getting DMs about that stuff. So let us know. So let's finally hear from Andrew Schwartz, who is a lead at the UC Berkeley Central Sierra Snow Lab, and a really wonderful person to guide us through this topic of how wildfires are impacting snowpack. Thank you as always for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode.
0: I am kind of a late bloomer. I. I got out of high school and I was like, school is so not for me. In fact, I'm still i still not convinced I graduated high school. Uh, but after high school, I took like, what was it, probably eight years or so to do odds and ends jobs. Like I worked in a lumber yard for a while. Um, I went out and, and worked in like the concert scene in Denver and, and did worked at Red Rocks and that type of stuff. And then I ended up uh, do- doing deliveries throughout the Colorado Rockies. And that, like, I absolutely love that job because I love being up in the changing conditions and and being in the beautiful mountains. Uh, But I I was like, all right, I'm bored. I'm not mentally stimulated. And so I was like, it's time to go back to school. And and, um, I wasn't quite sure for what. I was like, (laughs) you know, there's a million different topics out there and the catalog has them all listed. There's no way I can possibly pick one. Uh, And so before the upcoming, like, semester, I was sitting there one day at work, and and then I caught myself, like, racing to get home so I could look at, like, the weather channel radar to see if there were storms coming at me. And I was like, oh, maybe I should make this, like, my profession or whatever. So um, I took an intro to meteorology class and just absolutely fell in love with it. Like, applied to do an internship later that semester and uh, worked at the National Center for Atmospheric Research up in Boulder uh, for think like six, seven years total. Um, After I did my internship, I became an associate scientist there and worked on how weather affects aircraft. So um, you definitely don't want ice on your airplane wings. (laughs) And and so I was researching that. I was kind of researching a little bit into climate change, but not much. Um, and, And as I tend to go sometimes again, I was like, all right, this is really cool, but I'm a little bored and I want more like control over what I do. So um, I made the very logical decision to to get up and start studying snow um, in Australia, even though I'd never lived outside like the same 10 square mile radius or, or 10 mile radius, whatever in, in Colorado. Uh, so I went down to Australia for four years and initially like the prompt was um, to research and, and understand how forest affects snowpack down in Australia. And then you know, there's another component to this with how big bushfires are and how how much havoc they can wreak on the landscape. And so I ended up including that in my PhD research and really trying to identify the way uh, wildfires affect the snow down in Australia. So uh, I wrapped that up. Technically, I think last August, even though I was done there like a year ago or a year and a half ago. No, it was longer than that. Anyway, but I wrapped that up and I, I saw this job. And I kind of, I shared it to my, my partner and I was like, Hey, you should check this out. This looks kind of cool. And she looked at it and she was like, this job is like built for you. You have all these weird characteristics that you developed before you went back to school. It asked for you to be a scientist, you know, like one, one of the, one of the things they wanted, like, you must be able to drive a snow cat. You must be able to drive a freight, like a large truck. You must be able to do facility maintenance. And this is all stuff that I already did. So, um, Got this job and then moved in the middle of the pandemic, which um I think was more intense than than almost anything I've experienced because in Australia it was like super quiet. There were literally three other people in the international terminal in Sydney with us, and we flew right into spring break in LAX, and it was just chaos. I was like, oh no. But uh got through that, got up here. This job has been amazing, and I'm now I've gotten the the snail lab back up to a point where it's running and it's functional and we're getting all these cool new projects. And as part of my day-to-day job now, there's kind of two components to it. There's this um, on site like facilitation of research where I kind of help other people do their research up here. Um, but then there's also me chasing my research interests. So that's a lot of climate change based. And Being in California, it's a perfect spot to research fire impacts on snow, right? Um, and air quality issues. Cause boy, let me tell you, I did not get away from that smoke last year for like three months. Um, <laughs> so moved up here and I've been doing that for about a year. My focuses again are like on wildfire rain on snow. Cause it's starting to rain more in the winter than it used to. And atmospheric rivers. Cause that's where we get like a lot of our, a lot of our moisture. Um, but, uh, In terms of like my personal life and what I like to do, uh, a big part of why I decided to do snow research when I was in my undergrad is because I've always been like a big snow person. I used to dig like snow pits and pretend I was in Antarctica when I was like six years old. Um, And then I was a huge snowboarder from the time that I was like 18 up until today, like love to get outside, um, hike around a bit there was there was a point in time where I was crazy enough to do half pipe. I don't do that much these days. Um, but love snowboarding, love to be outside. and then um l- last year picked up mountain biking. I used to do a lot of road biking back in Australia because it's warm enough year round, and like they have killer bike networks out there. uh, picked up mountain biking, just did a hike yesterday, like just anything I can kind of get my hands on, hopefully rock climbing soon. I've heard good things. so. But yeah, that's kind of um, the the long story long version. Of
1: <laughs> that was great. I love that. Um, You know, I love that blue collar background because I'm kind of in a I'm in a situation where I kind of want to get my master's, but I'm kind of like I got my English degree from like this, like little known public university 10 years ago. And I've just done fire jobs and ski patrol and, like, barista jobs since then. Right. <laughs> I mean, on top of writing, apparently, or as well, obviously. Um, but, yeah, it's cool to hear of folks getting back into it in, like, a little bit later in life. And not just doing, like, the classic, like, hopping right into your master's and then hopping right into your PhD. And it's like, how do you people do this? <laughs> like,
0: <laughs> I think it can be really frustrating, too. Like, when I was working at NCAR, there's all these brilliant scientists that have been doing it for like six decades and then they're like you, you put your first paper at 17 years old and you're like yeah no that's not the track that all of us take dude
1: not super <laughs> like realistic for a lot of people no. that's insane um cool well i am really interested to know about your research it seems like your personal interests in researching like kind of tend to Linger around climate change and snowpack impacts. Uh, Could you tell me a little bit about sort of the science behind how wildfires can impact snow? Because this is something even I really didn't know a ton about until I started researching this series. Um, And also doing, I did this white paper on like the sort of hydrology element of fire impacts. And yeah, so I'm really curious if you could just give us the quick and dirty on, on that side of your research.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, realistically, most of the impacts that, are, that occur in the snowpack um, from fire disturbance come from reduction or elimination of, of the canopy, the tree canopy, and then of course kind of increases in solar radiation and wind as a result. Mm-hmm. Um, so generally speaking, and you know, different species of trees mean different things, but generally speaking, when uh, we see a fire go through whether that be like a big crown fire that immediately wipes out all those pine needles and branches or maybe even a smaller fire that causes the um some die off later on maybe not die off is the right word but some decay later on um you know that greatly increases the amount of sunlight on the snow and so as a result we get a lot faster melting of the snowpack in those areas Mm -hmm. um you know, a lot of people think that warm temperatures are, are the big driver for snow melt, and that's kind of true, but it's more so sunlight. So having that additional sun come in is really kind of problematic if we want our snowpack to stick around. Uh, and so there's there's that as one of the big components. The other thing too is, uh, without those branches and, and pine needles and stuff too, the winds pick up in speed, and because of that um of course you know with dry air and if it's mixing that dry air it'll evaporate the snowpack faster too so not only is it removing it but it's not moisture that you'll get back on that mountain or in the stream or whatever it is that you want it in so those are two of the bigger things and the the evaporation of course is the big one that everyone's concerned about because the melt if it comes down a little bit faster generally it's not a huge issue but um you know any type of increased evaporation is really concerning um and i'm sure you know from your work but there's the soil impacts too where you can get hydrophobic soils and then you get these weird developments in like runoff quick runoff and potential flash flooding that can occur um which is you know an issue when we do have increased rain events in the winter because that water all comes down and hits that soil and just like it's a big problem um so those are some of the bigger ones. In, in my research in Australia, we actually found that tree trunks, like uh, um, I should say, those areas around trees—you know, those tree wells that are shallower—and um, oftentimes, you know, during sunny days or whatever, you'll kind of see like a little area develop between the snow and the tree itself. And I found in my my research in Australia that uh, in like full, like living forests, those actually help to cool the snowpack. Because the cold air under the canopy sinks in and keeps it cool, but when it's burned, those tree same tree trunks actually accelerate the melt around them. So, the trees themselves are melting the snow at an increased rate in these areas too, um, which is super concerning. Now, there's some differences in 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 like accumulation too. Like with that big canopy, generally with pine trees, they tend to hold the snow up and above the the ground. And then it evaporates off the branches so there is kind of like a counteracting effect where you can get that additional snow falling onto the ground at that point but it does melt faster too so uh it's really hard to nail down whether that's i i don't want to say beneficial because (laughs) that's putting a label on it but um on whether they counteract enough to where it doesn't mean much but by and large, the the faster melting is, is really problematic, so.
1: Yeah, I can imagine. And I've also heard, you know, like, chunks of burnt vegetation landing on the snow then brings more solar radiation. Like, there's so many different little niche things there. Um, I'm also, I'm kind of curious how, how, maybe if you're witnessing fires reaching higher elevations and impacting stands that would normally have been you know, like, um, I guess, pretty robust in terms of holding their snowpack. Um, yep. Like, is that something you guys are starting to see? I feel like I've heard of that happening in the Rockies, like with the Cameron Peak or with the um, East Troublesome, yep. you know, like burning into these higher elevation stands that would have normally, you know, had a pretty significant uh, role in holding that snowpack. So, how is that sort of impacting everything, or like, what are you seeing there in terms of trends?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you make a really good point with the snowpack albedo too. That's something I forgot to mention, but that burned woody debris, um, that was actually a central part of my thesis. Like it happens immediately after the fire, but uh, the area that I was researching was like 15 to 20 years post burn and it was still happening at that point. So these are like long, long term, you know, changes that we're seeing. Um, But yeah, we, we are seeing of course, you know, like you mentioned with the Troublesome Fire, I kept a really close eye on that one, I, because I was in Australia at the time it burned, it got most intense over overnight, um, and I was able to watch it in real time. But, you know, we had the Calder Fire down here uh, that did something very similar, you know, generally when we, when we talk about these forest fires reaching, you know, kind of the crest of the mountains, whether that be the Continental Divide in Colorado or the Pacific Crest out here, they hit that granite or whatever it might be and just kind of fizzle out and now they're easily hopping those boundaries and that's what put south lake tahoe in jeopardy last year is for the most part it wasn't the fire heading up kind of the trenches around the highways or, or through the valleys it was more so it jumping over the desolation wilderness and and we are we're starting to see that that happened with multiple fires last year here in california and like as you mentioned in colorado too and that's a very very concerning trend because that means no forest is really safe from these fires and they're going to have a much larger impact on our snowpack.
1: I was on the Caldor for a public information officer role so like helping out on the fire with um, the incident management team and yeah seeing echo summit and and like going down there and looking and being like this is just like granite with like a few little timber stringers like how did it get over this like hundreds of feet of granite um, that was absolutely wild to see. I haven't been in fire for very long, but that that was very different. you know, like that's usually like that's like not I don't know if that's an often an identifiable like sort of um incident objective or incident like contingency line is like the crest of mountain ranges, <laughs> but I feel like it is. I feel like it's like kind of an unspoken like all right, I think we can pretty much rely on this and that's no longer really the case,
0: absolutely, yeah, and you're right, it was on echo summit it was. That Kaldar fire was like a fascinating case study for me because being in Australia, like initially my work was primarily on like forest fire impacts on snow. But the last year when I was writing everything up, (coughs) excuse me, I actually started working uh, with Queensland Fire and Emergency Services to start developing like models of wind flow through the forest so they can tell their firefighters like when to move before things really get bad. And so, um, in the last couple of years, I've tried to start picking up some more fire research in the summer too. And so there was a lot of me listening to scanners and observing fire behavior last year too. But yeah, it's to your point. I think it's it's always, from what I've witnessed at least, it's always been like ah, oh, it'll get to this point and it'll burn itself out, and it, you know we don't have to worry about it. It's just not that way anymore, unfortunately. How do you show up and speak out? Pow! invites you to join the Stoke the Vote movement, to engage, to show up at Pow events, and to vote this November. We will host over 40 in-person events from coast to coast with our alliance of professional climbers, snowboarders, skiers, runners, and bikers. From our fall Stoke Fest film tour to shop talks at climbing gyms, bike shops, and outdoor stores to a college tour with Pow's founder, and professional snowboarder Jeremy Jones. We are fired up to connect and inspire you and the rest of the outdoor state. POW and our alliance of athletes invite you to meet the moment, because midterms matter, now more than ever. Join us. I guess realistically, you know, there's there's so much like dismay and concern in the natural world uh, about the natural world and what's going on. Um, but you know, between Pal and 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 scientists and and other you know concerned people out there, there is a big push to really work on getting sustainable resolutions to a lot of the problems that we're facing, particularly in the fire realm. You know, we're, we're constantly looking at new mitigation strategies. Um, you know, potential ways that we could really make our forest forests healthier while while ensuring that we don't have to battle these these absolutely mega blazes. Um, mm-hmm. So just I think the, the enormous amount of community community support uh, is something that makes me hopeful. Uh, I do think that uh, it's not to say that it hasn't been documented that uh, there are areas that burn twice, but You know, we do, we are seeing some of these massive fires, but um, a lot of these areas are areas that are burning off that have had poor mitigation strategies in the past. And so that means that they were due sooner or later, anyways. So so we can focus on the areas that maybe hadn't been as bad right now. Mm -hmm. you know, that that East Troublesome Fire, I remember going up to to Grand Lake on a regular basis for camping and stuff and just looking at all those beetle kill pines around there and being like, dude, this place is just going to go once it gets, mm-hmm. once there's a spark. Absolutely. But um, I think the other thing too is we're learning, it, we've been challenged a lot by like the severe fire behavior, but we're starting to learn a lot more about it. And so we're able to deal with it a little bit better. Um I don't know. I guess hopeful overall is just, yeah, like people are actually starting to recognize how much of an issue this is and are coming together to try to resolve it.
1: Mm -hmm. That's that's perfect. I feel like that's my sense of hope too, is just seeing all the people out there doing work in their own little realms, their own little niches. And yeah, it's cool to see. It's cool to see folks just like utilizing their their skills and their passions in ways that are beneficial and impactful. And yeah, we'll see how it goes here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fingers crossed. I, I will say that actually here, I'm gonna add one more thing to that. Go ahead. Um, earlier this year, I did a New York Times article on, on drought and uh, Senator Padilla's team reached out to me because they're drafting federal bills to address these extreme events and really put emphasis on things like mitigation of, of extreme wildfires and things like that so it's awesome that we have like the average every or like extremely motivated folks working towards it but it's also really awesome to see that at higher levels where we get our funding and our policy from like this is a, an area of concern as well um for the, those of us that do love being outside, it's it's whether it's the smoke or the forest destruction themselves or their impacts on water, like these these fires are just so immense and they affect everything.
1: All right, y'all, that's what we've got for you today. Huge thanks to Andrew for coming on the show. And also want to say that it was great to meet Andrew in real life at the Protect Our Winters Summit in Reno or near Reno, I guess, a few weeks ago. Uh, just can't overstate the importance of meeting people in real life, like how cool it is and how much more impactful it feels and how much more genuine the conversations can be when you're kind of in person and collaborating and talking with multiple folks at once. So anytime you guys have opportunities to link up with people in real life, I think you should take it. Uh, let's get off of zoom every now and then. Oh my gosh. Anyway, thanks for listening. Please uh, share this with anybody who you think might be interested. Uh, And thanks, huge thanks to POW for sponsoring this episode as well as this whole series. We'll have one more episode for you guys in this series next week. And then we'll be moving on to maybe talking about some hunting and publishing a few episodes that I recorded on the road. My first couple of real life interviews, which I'm very excited about. So a lot of good stuff coming up for you guys. So stay tuned and thanks for listening and we will catch you on the next episode.